I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Coming up this hour, what Uber isn't. Global ride-sharing giant Didi just filed for an IPO, and it is revealing a lot about the business models for both Uber and Lyft. Then an argument that stocks like Zoom and DocuSign deserve their premium multiples, but some other names in the software space still have something to prove. And Elon Musk unveiling the new Tesla sports car. We're going to dive into the Tesla narrative, and we've got a story on Musk's tax strategy, John. Yeah, and tech this morning broadly higher to end the week. S&P adding to record levels earlier, though it's a little bit flat right now. And the Nasdaq has been in the green. We're seeing some big calls on Zoom, Amazon, Dell, and more that we'll bring to you. D. We'll get to all those. But first, guys, a new IPO, Didi, the Chinese ride-hailing giant, is heading to the American market. The company is Uber's biggest competitor on the global stage, famously defeating their efforts in China and forcing their U.S. rival to sell the company its business there in exchange for shares in Didi. It also remains a heated rival in LATAM. Meanwhile, Uber has scaled back its ambitions beyond ride-sharing. Didi's platform, though, still spans logistics, robo-taxis, autonomous EV development, even financial services, certainly making it more of a super app. So a big part of how Didi got here, though, has been its home court advantage in China. But, guys, that may also be one of the biggest risks going forward. We know the Chinese regulators are knocking down monopolistic practices. It has targeted Didi with a fine. And, guys, I also want to raise some questions raised by the F1 that we got yesterday. The company presented revenue in a tricky way that made it seem bigger than it actually is. And even that last quarter of profitability was due to investment gains, not the economics of the underlying business. And, John, that may be part of why public markets haven't received ride-sharing companies very well. We know that Uber and Lyft have been massively underperforming the S&P since their debuts. And maybe that has to do with them presenting adjusted EBITDA and adjusted net revenue when these losses from Uber to Lyft to Didi are still very large. Yeah, Deidre, we were talking about this in the afternoon and uh, trading some texts about it. And the, the revenue is difficult to parse. And so are these side businesses and ventures that uh, Didi is growing. So, you know, whether it's freight or group buying, they've got that in the app. Uh, if you follow Arjun Karpal, who's uh, CNBC on the ground in China, he's showing some of these things that uh, that Didi has built out, Carl. But what is also in the F1, Didi is financing these sometimes through debt, through equity, separately, these projects. So it's saying we might lose control of these things. So in a way, that might be kind of like Uber selling off parts of its businesses that it then has lost control of but still has investments in, whether it's autonomous <laughs> driving or the flying taxis. So mm -hmm. you might not be getting 100% of what you think you're getting when you're buying these companies. 
-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, these processes uh, have to drive discipline in, in the end, one way or another. There is a lot in there on, on the ownership stakes and the valuation. But, D, it's happening amid this backdrop of what some argue is escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. And this sort of flies in the face of that, the, the cooperation, <laughs> the access to our capital markets between two giant superpowers. Yeah, and that global story is so important to Didi, and that's why they're listing on a U.S. exchange, not over in China, because, as we mentioned at the top, it is Uber's biggest competitor on a global stage. And, John, perhaps, you know, it comes down to these price wars, which may have eased a little bit, according to Lyft and Uber CEOs in the U.S., but still in full force in places like Latin America that hurts that bottom line for both of them. Yeah, they Number two in food delivery, what, in, in Mexico? Uh, so lots of international play here when it comes to Didi. Well, now let's bring in Bessemer's Byron Dieter, software investor. He's talked to us about Mount Sass, the basket of cloud stocks. And also, uh, Byron's got a new thesis on how you can value some of these high-growth software names. But first, Byron, just want to get your take on this international ride-hailing market. I know that you've made some investments over time in mobility. Uh, I believe there was a startup that you, you guys were invested in that sold to Ola, uh, and, and also in some autonomous, particularly when it comes to freight and remote. H how do you judge the value in one of these companies versus another as we see Didi's F1 coming out? You bet. Well, the, the overall trend is white hot. Certainly mobility is one of the most interesting investable segments of tech. Going back to the eVTOL discussion in the prior segment, looking at ride sharing and looking at um, autonomy ultimately and how those converge, as well as the electrification of mobility, which is a fundamental enabler across that. For these massive markets, we're certainly looking at long-term TAM and overall the revenue potential that they hold. But when you look at the medium term, and specifically as we're all trying to wrestle with valuations of current businesses today that have fundamental P&Ls that are operational, we're really looking at the interplay between growth and free cash flow. We think that in bull market cases, people over-index on revenue growth purely. And then in bear markets, they revert to free cash flow earning safety. And we really think this notion of efficiency, the relationship between those two, and efficient growth should be the long-term arbiter of value. And that's what we're focused on for looking at medium-term growth investments and their overall valuation multiples in this white-hot market. Because what does that tell you about a company when they're able to squeeze the most growth out of every individual dollar, about either their momentum, their velocity, or the product market fit that's allowing them, uh, I, I guess, the leeway to get into adjacent markets? It's a comment on all of the above, and that's what's exciting. Um, what we fundamentally care about long-term, whether it's a, a shopping you know, company or a tech business, is free cash flow and their ability to create free cash flow. However, in these long visionary bets that we're making in tech, even in the public markets these days, what you have to buy into is this idea that leverage will come over time and you want to see the profitability come from gross and ultimately net margin. Um, and, and that's really the bet, trying to pull apart, particularly with these COVID markets, who have been net COVID beneficiaries and those headwinds that will, and the tailwinds that will continue. And then the businesses that have faced headwinds um, which are going to uh, pull back, and where will we see some resurgence? And so from our standpoint, if you look at businesses like a Square, a Shopify, a Zoom, these businesses have grown at 100 to 200% year over year, some of them coming off of good comps, of course, with COVID. Um, 
in a profitable way while generating free cash flow. That's an amazing set of metrics at scale that these businesses are posting. And so what we're trying to deconstruct is the relationship between those two variables in the coming quarters to figure out where fundamental value is for the publics. And then more importantly for our business, the late stage privates that are about to be public. Huh, that's interesting, Byron. You know, on the ride business itself, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it feels like the consumer is going to win, right? I mean, just layer upon layer of competition. Um, they're already dealing with labor shortages. and It's hard to imagine that this is going to improve pricing, or, or could I be wrong on that? So I love that you say that, and I think that's, fr frankly, a thesis in most of tech these days, which is the competition and the flood of capital coming into this market is going to result in more availability of product and lower prices. We're absolutely seeing that in ride sharing. And when you layer in ultimately autonomy, whether it's in the, in the cars or the EV tolls, we're going to have mass availability at extremely competitive prices. And that's what we're seeing in the enabling infrastructure and in tech as well. When you've got um, AWS, you've got Azure, you've got Google Cloud competing to be the rails of modern technology, they're beating each other up in a wonderful way on pricing, which is allowing startups and businesses that are moving to the cloud to leverage that in an extremely efficient way. And those are all net positive trends for consumers and the businesses that, um, that bank with them and, and build on top of them. Byron, I could talk about uh, ride sharing and the gig economy all day. I don't actually think that the consumer is going to win here. We have seen prices go up. But, but I know that you have some really interesting comments on software, specifically some of the hottest names from last year that we've seen take a leg down but are starting to rebound now, like the Zooms and DocuSigns of the world. You say that they justify their valuations. We were talking a few weeks ago, uh, and the market was down 25% in these segments. It's backing up 10% uh, over the last uh, week and change alone. It's been a roller coaster ride as people are trying to solve that fundamental question of, of what is fair value for these markets. Um, and when you step back, I, I love to compare it to some macro things. You look at crypto, which is a fundamental market that's exciting. People are questioning, though, whether it should exist. They're taking some exposure because they feel that they want the diversification. That market's at about $2 trillion today. If you step back and look at cloud computing, that market is only $2 trillion today, meaning the entire future of software, the foundation of our tech economy, the pure play companies there are only valued at $2 trillion collectively. I can't tell you what the next few weeks are going to do. I can absolutely tell you with confidence that the next several years are going to bring massive appreciation to the anchor stocks of that basket and to the industry overall as cloud rips through fundamentally within software and more broadly within tech. Byron, let me try this one on you. Right now, there's a cohort of investors that wants to value some companies that don't really have a legacy in software, kind of like their software companies. I'm thinking companies like GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry is a software company. But we apply your efficiency thesis to what investors would have to expect out of those companies for their investments at these levels to make sense. How do you measure the odds? Yep. You, you know it's a compelling trend when people are trying to adopt it uh, for their traditional businesses. And, and there's a lot of cloud washing going on, where people are trying to look like cloud, smell like cloud. Um, and those words are coming up more and more in earnings calls. We literally have tracked that um, over some of the incumbent software vendors, in fact, and the use of the term as they drop it in because they know that that's where the market's headed and they want to be like that. Certainly, there's some big stretches. GameStop, as they try to cloudify, um, is one of the bigger reaches. However, um, some of the traditional software companies, I credit Adobe first and foremost as the most successful transition business, they've actually done it. They took many earnings hits. They took this painful transitionary time, and they were able to get their business model and their delivery model transitioned to subscription and then cloud-based deliveries, uh, multi-tenant, 
uh, browser-based delivery and, and mobile delivery. And those transitions are hard. The vast majority of the companies that are trying to identify with cloud right now are going to get crushed because the pure plays are going to leapfrog past them and they are going to own the markets that the legacy vendors once held. Indeed, amazing how Shantanu at Adobe pulled that off. And they got earnings coming up. Byron Dieter, thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be back. Uh, that was fantastic. When we come back, uh, what's next for Elon Musk? A crypto conversation with the CEO of Blockchain.com and Netflix and Shill. A big hour of tech checks just getting started. Got check on Amazon. The stock falling this morning amid reports that House lawmakers are proposing bills that could force tech giants to effectively split into multiple companies or shed private label products. And this news comes after a new JP Morgan note says 
it expects the tech giant to surpass Walmart as the largest U.S. retailer by the end of next year. And Julia is going to have a lot more on these draft bills circulating in Congress coming up. John. Uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing more about the, that, those bills in the coming week. In the meantime, Tesla is debuting its premium Model S Plaid last night at Tesla headquarters in Fremont, California, with Elon Musk touting the car as the fastest production car ever made. They've already begun deliveries. This is what Musk had to say. We've got to show that an electric car is the best car, hands down. You know? So it's, it's got to be clear. It's like, man, this is... Uh, Sustainable energy cars it can be the fastest cars, can be the safest cars, uh, can be the most kick-ass cars in every way. Um, and that, and that's, that's why we did the plaid. With us now to discuss the author of Ludacris, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors, Ed Niedermeyer, who also hosts the Autonicast podcast. Ed, welcome. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it feels like your general point is that we've got, uh, you know, the the S and the X, law, law of large numbers, uh, the roadster, who knows? Uh, China is a difficult environment. Uh, they've got competition coming online. We needed some fireworks. Is this going to is this going to cut it? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, Elon Musk played the hits, right? And, and Tesla played the hits last night um, and uh, they doubled down on the things that have traditionally, you know, built the brand and what, what they built the brand on. Um, the question is, you know, was anybody buying, uh, was anybody not buying a Tesla because it didn't accelerate fast enough? Um, you know, when you talk to actual users, the, the ludicrous mode is already like physically uncomfortable. Um, I really don't see other than, than getting those sort of committed fans to, to, to buy another, another one. Like, I, I don't know what, what this, you know, this update does. Yeah. I wonder if you think, does this mark a pivot in Tesla's narrative from, for example, low margin, volume, affordable, to more premier performance? Right, see, that's the question. Um, you know, we, Tesla kind of has gone back and forth. They, they sort of established themselves at the high end of the market, um, but they always had that sort of messianic vision of, of getting to, you know, affordable prices and the expensive premium car you're buying today is gonna help, you know, less uh, well-off folks afford an EV in the future. And, um, you know, I think we've seen with the, with the Model 3 and the Model Y, um, you know, that that has definitely not happened to the extent that, that it was hyped. I mean, there was talk of, you know, uh, a million units a year and, and you know, uh, uh, with, uh, you know, by a couple of years ago. Um, and so the, you know, now it seems with the Plaid, it's, it's, they, they've got a Halo uh, vehicle again that's, that's sort of suggesting that, that they're committing back to the, the premium model. But I think that it, it's not really certain. And I think as competition comes into the market, they have to be a lot more clear about, you know, what kind of a car company are you? And you don't sound impressed by yesterday's conference. But, you know, I don't think that even Tesla fans think that this was a major game changer for the mission or for the financials. This was all about Tesla showing off its technology, right? And that it still remains far ahead of the pack, even though we're going to see more electric vehicles, wasn't it? Yeah, um, and I think, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the interior refresh of the Model S is important. I mean, the sales of that vehicle have really been been suffering and it needed something to, to revive it. Um, but, you know, and I think that, that Tesla has really, you know, obviously built a brand around being sort of on the cutting edge of technology. Um, but, you know, being on the cutting edge is not always 100% good. And, and frankly, I think there's a lot of things, um, already Tesla has a lot of struggles with like um, their human machine interface, particularly when it comes to the automation in their cars. Um, you see sort of sudden unintended acceleration being a problem, mode confusion using autopilot. And I think some of the, the further steps that they're taking, um, particularly in that, that human machine interface, 
piece of it, I think, runs a lot of risks of, of worsening some of those problems. Um, I'm referring here to the, the, the move away from like control stocks to like the car, apparently being able to just kind of know where you're going. Like th there's a lot of potential problems with that. And, um, you know, good uh, with a vehicle, you really have to have your design rooted in, um, you know, people's actual needs. And it feels like instead Tesla is just, you know, building on its brand rather than what, what people actually need. And, and, but yeah, but and are, are we maybe overthinking this? Because narrative is so important. And Elon Musk has built this character of Tesla on so many interesting and probably important car attributes. Part of it has been the self-driving thing, and there are problems with that narrative. And so when there are problems with that, he can pivot over to talking about green and energy efficiency, and he can get it into the Bitcoin conversation, which angers the Bitcoin people but gets you thinking about the efficiency of EVs. And now, hey, it's a fast car. We're talking about the Plaid. I mean, he can, he can sort of lean on any one of those things at any time, and it's not like Porsche can do that, right, or Ford can do that quite as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, the narratives, uh, Musk's ability to, to create and, and um, propagate narratives is, is very clearly like one of the most fundamental thing to the company's success. Again, though, I think, I think what we're seeing here, though, is that you know, Musk has always been in this dialogue with his committed fans. Um, he's who he speaks to um, literally in terms of you know, when he goes to the media and stuff, it's, it's oftentimes just to like committed fan blogs. And so he's, he's been in this conversation. And I think what you're seeing is that you know, with Plaid, he's really served them. He served what they've been used to sort of expecting and wanting. And I feel like that that conversation, that discourse that they're having is sort of diverging from the mainstream. And I think you're seeing a lot more EVs come in the market. I was driving the Mustang Mach-E uh, for a week, uh, a few weeks back. And like, that's a really great example of a car that that does the things that Tesla does well, maybe not to quite the same extent that Tesla does, but that it's just, they do it in a much more well-rounded sort of normal car uh, package. And I think that as this market matures, I think that Musk is going to need to sort of examine, you know, are his are his hardcore fans like, you know, are they is the feedback from them sort of leading him away from the, the meat of the market? And I, I think there's a very real risk there. Yeah. Although <laughs> market cap is still a multiple of some of those legacy players. Um, it'll be an interesting 2022 for sure. And thanks so much. Good to see you. Of course. Likewise. Yeah, talking Tesla Platt. And Deirdre, I mean, Carl and I lost you, I think it was yesterday, on MASH and Frasier, but you have seen Spaceballs. You get the Platt <laughs> thing, right? Um, okay. I okay. know of Spaceballs. We got to work on that. I know of Spaceballs. Can I get away with that? Yeah, no, <laughs> we got we to gotta work on that. We got to have one of those, you know, maybe FaceTime group watch parties on Spaceballs. Okay, growth stocks rebounding <laughs> at value's expense has been a big part of the market story this week. Dom Chu is looking at the names that have led growth back into the lead. Dom. I mean, John, Deirdre, Carl, I will just say that nobody has their luggage combination as one, two, <laughs> three, four, five, anymore. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about that growth versus value trade because the Tesla narrative has been a big part of that growth outperformance over the last several years, specifically in the last couple of years. But it's been value that's, yes, come to the forefront, especially so far in the last six months and this year. The orange line is an ETF that tracks those value stocks, and the white line is the growth one. You can see here they were pretty much neck and neck to start the year, but they've really kind of diverged over the course of this particular year so far. 
Growth made a huge push in the month of April right here. You can see they narrowed the gap in performance. And then again, it's trying to reassert itself here in just about the last month or so. So where has that growth story been trading? Where have investors actually been buying up some of those growth names to propel this near-term, at least, outperformance over value? Well, it has been in technology and communication services type stocks. The mega cap ones for sure. If you look at Microsoft, Alphabet, and Facebook, these three stocks among the most heavily weighted in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ overall over the last month, up about 5, 6, 7% overall. These three names have contributed a lot. They've gone an investor shopping list, so it looks like big cap technology and comm services has become part of the shopping list. But it hasn't just been these types of names. It's also been names in software and hardware as well, specifically semiconductors. We know about that semiconductor trade and the shortages there. But NVIDIA over the last month is up 24 percent. Adobe on the software side up about 11, 12 percent. Same for Salesforce.com. If you look at software and chips, those may be two places to keep a close eye on because they have been in some ways Deirdre, John, Carl, a way to look at playing value tech, so to speak, right? The, the ones that aren't perhaps uh, geared towards cloud computing or other fast-growing parts of the market, the ones that are technology and can still be considered ones that have a value tilt towards them, guys. Back over to you. Yeah, a very good point, that, that bifurcation even within tech. Uh, meanwhile, though, is a big tech reckoning on the way. The latest on new potential regulation circling the hill. That's next. Meanwhile, checking in on the meme trade as we close out the week. Clover, a clear winner, while AMC is on pace to end the week in red. It has been very volatile. Tech Check is back in two. Stay with us. Resetting at the bottom of the hour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. Julia's got a look at potential regulation on the way for big tech. We're paying a lot of attention to that. But first, a news update with Christina Partsnevelos. Hey, Christina. Hi, Carl. So here's what's happening at this hour. The FDA reportedly telling Johnson & Johnson to throw out 60 million doses of COVID vaccines. They were made at the Trouble Emergent Plant in Baltimore, and 10 million doses are being approved for distribution. Multiple reports say full clearance for the plant is still being considered following manufacturing issues there. Royal Caribbean says two guests on one of its ships have tested positive for COVID-19. The infections were found on the Celebrity Millennium, the first cruise ship to sail out of North America since the start of the pandemic. Both passengers are asymptomatic and in isolation. Philip Morris shares nearly hitting a new 52-week high. The company announcing share buyback programs worth up to $7 billion. Philip Morris' stock is up about 18% this year. And a key measure of U.S. freight volume is showing the U.S. recovery is continuing to accelerate. The CAS freight index for shipments hit its second highest level in May. The rise was helped by a rise in vehicle shipments and a likely increase in inventory restocking. Carl, back to you. I'll take or it. John. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Christina. Now, a battle against big tech platforms brewing on Capitol Hill. Julia Borston's got a breakdown of the bills behind that effort. Julia, all from Democrats? Well, we're right now digging through the five draft antitrust bills that Democrats are circulating, and they take aim specifically at the tech giants' self-dealing and the power of their scale. Now, while the drafts could certainly change dramatically and it's unclear what kind of Republican support they have, if any of these do pass, they could have long-lasting implications on Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, as well as Facebook. The platform Anti-Monopoly Act would make it illegal 
for the Giants, which they define as half a million monthly users and more than $600 million in market cap, make it illegal for them to privilege their own lines of business over competitors. So that would change the way Google could handle search results and Amazon, its private label products, and then Apple, of course, its own services in the App Store. Now, most threatening to the Giants, though perhaps least likely to pass, is the Ending Platform Monopolies Act. That would give the Justice Department authority to break up the tech giants if they have a conflict of interest, such as owning a platform that they also compete on. The Platform Competition and Opportunity Act would make it much harder for the tech giants to acquire competitors. They'd have to prove that the acquisition target does not compete with them at all. And yet another act would force companies like Facebook to enable users to easily move their data to a rival service. And the bill that's likely most likely to pass would raise fees on mergers to better fund the FTC and DOJ and bolster their antitrust enforcement. And antitrust concerns will be in the spotlight next week on Tuesday when executives from Google and Amazon testify in Capitol Hill along with the general counsel of Sono. That's a company that has accused Google and Amazon of using their market power to drive users to their own devices uh, and making it harder for Sonos. What are you watching here? What do you think is going to have the biggest impact? Well, Julia, I'm watching unintended consequences because we know who they're after with some of these things, but the plant platform anti-monopoly act i mean i wonder what's to stop that from snaring walmart walmart's got a lot of users they're a big company i mean 600 billion in market cap maybe they're not quite there at the moment but they could easily get there then can they not stock you know their uh private label you know products in a preferred position on the website and in the store because of this act i mean are they going to like that in arkansas well, look, I think that these are definitely targeting the tech giants. Of course, this comes after that big report we got in the fall, after more than a year-long antitrust investigation into these companies. So I think that these are going to be targeting the, the tech giants, and I think we're unlikely to see um, some of the more uh, dramatic of these past. But I think that the question really is whether you're unfairly favoring your own services. Maybe, you know, all of these platforms are going to have to look at whether or not they're promoting their own products over another without saying, hey, we're going to show you ours. This is ours and we'll show you another one next to it. So I think there's going to be a lot of nuance here. And I don't know if this is real, going to really have that much impact, John, on the likes of a Walmart, at least not yet. Well, you know, Walmart rises 50 percent and all of a sudden it could. Omnichannel is a thing. I think they might be surprised how many different kinds of companies might actually push back against it. We will see. Julia, thank you. Dee? Great stuff, guys. After the break, the CEO of one of the biggest crypto platforms, Blockchain.com, joins Tech Check to talk Bitcoin hacks and a lot more. And speaking of, Kathy Wood clearly still bullish on the space, boosting ARK Invest's stake in Coinbase to more than a billion dollars. Tech Check will be right back. Stay with us. Move over, hot girl summer. It is hot IPO summer, this year at least. The journal highlighting the slate that we are expecting, which should raise upwards of $40 billion in June, July, and August. Big names like Didi, which we've talked about, and Robinhood on their way to go public soon. That's not including all of the SPACs, which could be announced. And guys, <laughs> the summer is usually 
a slower time for IPOs. But these are two massive names that we could see come to market. And perhaps some of that slack, back slowdown, excuse me, <laughs> that we have seen over the recent weeks and months has something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know we're nerds here on CNBC, but I don't know about move over hot girl summer. I mean, there's room for both. We can have hot IPOs. We can have we can all be hot during the summer. But uh, I think also during the summer, <laughs> as we begin to open up, a question is, will Carl, the demand for some of these things that people have been stuck at home focused on remain or will attention shift and thus might enthusiasm shift? Uh, indeed. Uh, but that's been the narrative, John, for a few months now, right? We were all going to leave our homes and you would see eroding participation in sports betting and stock manias. Uh, certainly, it's hard to argue that that's happened, at least at this early stage. Uh, but, D, we were talking with Kramer and Faber earlier this morning on, on Squawk on the Street about the SPAC. I don't know if you call it a second act yet. It's still a little early. But if you look over the long term, we were raising $1 billion in SPAC capital in 2013. Obviously, this year, $100 billion plus. So that long-term momentum is something to watch as well. Yep, yep. Goodbye. All right. Is three the new five? Big tech coalescing around a new work-from-home policy next. Plus, Zoom named a top pick by RBC, bullish on the company's technology, despite employees returning to the office. For that story, go to cnbc.com slash pro. We'll be right back. Amazon is relaxing its return to work policies. The company will allow corporate employees to work remotely up to two days per week. The move follows Facebook's decision to ease its own plans. Employees who don't have permission to work remotely permanently will be expected to come into the office at least 50 percent of the time. Mark Zuckerberg is planning to take full advantage of that in an internal memo. He told employees he plans to spend as much as half of next year working remotely, saying it has, quote, given me more space for long-term thinking and help me spend more time with my family, which has made me happier and more productive at work. Also more time for his hobbies. D, we looked at the spear throwing the other day, but there seems to be a, a kind of a disconnect, D, between West Coast tech-oriented companies, Salesforce, Amazon, Facebook, and more East Coast-oriented, certainly financials, where the message is clearly, we want you back. Yeah, famously, right, Jamie Dimon saying that he is sick of Zoom and he wants his people back. I mean, what we're hearing from a lot of the tech CEOs is that you have to be flexible. And if you aren't, you're going to lose out on talent. Remember, after Jamie Dimon said that, John, uh, Stripe came out and said, OK, come over to us. We'll provide you some flexibility. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's a grand experiment. Do employers really want to give employees this flexibility? Um, we're still very early in the game here in terms of thinking of the future of hybrid work. Yeah. I mean, you don't want Mark Zuckerberg throwing that spear at work. So, I mean, I guess he's sort of <laughs> making his point, especially in the open office spaces. But I, I don't think this is going to work, you know, what tech is pushing right now. I mean, I think there's a dream of it sort of working, but more what Apple is leaning toward. Yes, three days in the office, but we're going to tell you what three days. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, right? So you can schedule meetings. You know when people are going to be around. I mean, everybody wants to choose flexibly what days they want to be in, but they also kind of want everybody else to be in those same days, I think. I, I just don't think it's going to work. And I think younger workers, talented workers, lose out sometimes when they don't have those connections, that networking, uh, Carl, that, that older workers who have been in the workforce more and have relationships, they might find it more easy to work remote. Yep. And I still think back, John, uh, to your interview 
with Andy Jassy, I think it was probably early February, where we talked about this whole dynamic, and his answer to you was essentially, it's not just about that you're in the office. It's you go to the meeting. It's those tiny conversations, D, that happen after the meeting, in the hallway, where you do a breakout, go to the whiteboard, have a coffee. That's where true innovation happens. At least that's what Jassy believes. Yeah, and so no surprise, companies want it both ways, right? Some spontaneity a few days a week and giving their employees flexibility. John, I'm with you, though. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing is every manager has to sort of decide for themselves. So that gets a little messy, too. Yeah. I mean, hey, I'm at the office. All right. Check out Chewy. Ryan Cohen's old company shares moving after the company beat on the top and bottom lines. Moving down, though, down more than five and a half percent. They warned of labor shortages and supply chain issues. Tech Check's back in two. It's been a big week for Bitcoin. Its role in hacking schemes taking center stage alongside new adoption in El Salvador and bullish moves by Kathy Wood's ARK Invest. Here to discuss the space, Blockchain.com co-founder and CEO Peter Smith. Peter, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. I mean, it's been a big week in terms of headlines, uh, which is kind of the norm. However, the price of Bitcoin hasn't been very volatile. It's been flat on the week. What does this say about the currency, the cryptocurrency? Yeah, I think it starts to point to how mature the market's getting, um, as well as just like a greater degree of institutional involvement in the space. And so you see less of this sort of retail-driven volatility. Um, but it's certainly been a huge week for news this week in, in the crypto space. Peter, um, what, what are you seeing that perhaps has changed over the past few months in trading behavior? Uh, we were seeing Bitcoin trade reacting a lot to Elon Musk. This week, I think we saw it reacting to El Salvador. It, it went up and then it kind of settled back down again. There's a lot of talk about uh, holding on for dear life and a segment of people doing that. But there is a huge group of people and institutions certainly not doing that, right? Yeah, sure. There's lots of people that are trading the volatility. But there's also a lot of demand um, as a long-term investment. And we see that increasingly from institutions. You know, whenever you've seen the market retrace significantly, you see this sort of huge level of buy support for the market. And so I think there's an awareness that the market's gone up very quickly over the last 12 months. And so you'll see some like profit taking towards the top of those momentum swings. But you also see a huge amount of institutional buy side, you know, when you get towards the like 30s of the market. You know, I think another sort of example of the institutional demand in Bitcoin was the massively oversubscribed uh, bond deal that MicroStrategy did earlier this week. Yeah, that, that was huge. And then that, that deal got upped, which was also interesting. You know, J.P. Morgan did a piece earlier in the week, Peter, where they said uh, Bitcoin futures, not to get too wonky here, are in backwardation. They say it's a, a bearish signal and it's a reflection of how weak uh, Bitcoin demand is from institutions who tend to use CME futures to gain exposure to Bitcoin. I, I'm not sure how much you're watching it, but if you are, is that concerning? I don't think that's super concerning. Most of the long-term money in the space is doing it via spot and large custodians. Um, the, the sort of trading volume in the future is, is, is that vol trader that we're talking about. And so it's you know, hedge funds that are trading volatility, um, you know, even the retail on the offshore venues. The futures markets to me is like, that's where the you know, sort of absolute volatility trader plays. And the spot market is where you see this sort of long-term accumulation. And that's what we're seeing in the market right now. That's why it didn't retrace below 30. And you're seeing just really persistent, strong demand in the spot market. 
you know, in an accumulation long-term hold cycle in those levels. Peter, thanks for breaking it down for us. Peter Smith, blockchain.com CEO. Meanwhile, does Elon Musk, the second richest person in the world, have a lower tax rate than you? Probably. And there's not much anyone can do about it. Our Robert Frank got the story on how billionaires, and this one in particular, structures his taxes, Robert. Well, D. Elon Musk paid no federal income tax in 2018. He paid less than $70,000 in federal income taxes two years before that. So how did he do it? Well, the answer is mainly in borrowing. Musk doesn't take a salary from Tesla. He has hit about half the targets in his $50 billion compensation package. That pays out over a decade. But that package is stock options, not cash or income. And when he doesn't want to sell shares, if he doesn't have to. So to fund his expenses, he takes loans against his stock. In fact, a lot of stock. SEC filings showed he pledged 92 million shares. Those are now worth about $56 billion to pay for personal loans. He gets cash from the loans, doesn't pay any income tax, and then deducts some of the interest on those loans from his taxes. End result, millions in proceeds without paying any income tax. There are years when he will have a huge tax bill from exercising options grants, Musk tweeting, I will continue to pay income taxes in California proportionate to my time in the state, which, which is and will be significant. He's also sold all of his California homes, except for one in the Bay Area. He lives in what he says is a $50,000 home in Texas that he rents from SpaceX. Guys, it's hard for me to imagine Elon Musk living in a home worth $50,000. Maybe he sleeps in his Cybertruck. Uh, nonetheless, his taxes are very low. Back well, to you. Yeah, I guess where he lives and where he spends his time might be different places in a way, in a way. But uh, you point out that billionaire income is lumpy. I, I wonder if this less ownership lifestyle might be a way for some people to get around some aspects of a potential wealth tax. I mean, it's harder to value what you can't see in some cases, right? Well, in his case, his asset really is the stock. And so for most of us, our asset is our house. So it wouldn't make sense to sell your house because then you lose the ability to borrow against it. In his case, he has pledged, again, 92 million shares. That is a huge amount to fund the taxes and the amount of money he needs to spend to exercise those options. At some point, he'll cash out, then pay a capital gain tax. So he is paying taxes along the way. These three years may have been kind of outliers. But yeah, as long as you have an asset you can borrow against, that is basically income tax-free income, and you get to deduct the interest payments. So it's, it's great for billionaires who own a lot of stock. Yeah, yeah, Robert Frank. More complicated even than it looks. Uh, thank you. A former Theranos CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, is expected back in court next week. And with her trial set to take place in August, Holmes-themed swag is popping up all over the Internet. CNBC producer Yasmin Coram takes a look at some of that unexpected merch. For a cool $22, you can get a Theranos mug on Etsy. More adventurous? Grab a t-shirt that says Elizabeth Holmes is my hashtag girl boss. If you're the ultimate fan, what's billed as an authentic Theranos lab coat, just like the one that Holmes used to wear, is for sale on Poshmark for $17,000. So the verdict from buyers? 
comfy shirt to gaslight and gatekeeping. Can't wait to wear it to my next therapy appointment. Shipping was speedy, just like a good genetic test. Hmm. It's like Suicide Squad in real life. All right. For the entire piece, pull out your phone, scan this QR code, which will take you to our website, cnbc.com slash techcheck, where there's much more content to explore. Dee. Now we've seen everything. He's gone. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes merchandise. Even she's got a fan club. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley names Dell a top pick, saying hardware names have potential into the rest of the year. Dell down about nine tenths of one percent. Plus, you streamed it. Now you can buy it. We've got the details on Netflix's next idea. Tech Check is back after one more quick break. Today and one more thing, Julia's back with the Netflix story, uh, something people have been talking about for a long time, JB. That's right, Carl. Netflix is getting into the merch game. It's teaming up with Shopify to launch their own online store. Now, the effort is the company's first direct-to-consumer foray after previously teaming up with retail giants such as Amazon and Walmart to sell licensed products based on their properties. Now, the first drop is merchandise based on anime series Yasuke and Eden, including a streetwear line from Hypeland and a $135 clock from designer Natalie Nugent. Now, Netflix is also planning to release products based on Lupin later this month, as well as Stranger Things and Money Heist. John, this seems so smart to me. Take advantage of the big, devoted fan base. They're kind of taking a page from Disney here. They've established the franchises. Might as well figure out other ways to make money from them. Yeah, and Shopify, Shopify, Shopify. It's like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I mean, we had a firm on yesterday talking about getting together with Shopify. Netflix logic, <clears throat> excuse me, launching this store. And D, it feels to me like uh, they are sort of building on the ecosystem around their brands. Like, um, and maybe Julia, you could weigh in on this. Almost like pre theme park, being able to build experiences to monetize and build interest around their brands. Yes, look, I think every time you have someone wearing yeah. a T-shirt with a, a logo on it or a name of a show on it, that's just going to do more to promote the product. So I think it becomes this virtuous cycle. You get the big fans to buy the products. That generates revenue but also promotes the show. So a win-win all around if it, if it works out. It also, guys, brings to mind that collectibles business. We were just talking about this yesterday with GameStop and how its revenues from the last quarter in that collectibles uh, segment was up more than 90%. So it makes sense that Netflix is sort of already getting into that. They know that they have some hits. And, you know, direct-to-consumer, Carl, <laughs> that is what gets investors excited these days. Yeah, JB, I mean, we only have a few seconds left, but I'm curious your thoughts, because for a long time we thought, oh, can Disney ever match Netflix's technology? And now the question is going to be, can Netflix replicate what Disney does in that whole flywheel of consumer products, in their case, theme parks and content itself? Well, look, we're a long ways from talking about a Netflix theme park, and they certainly don't have the heft with kids when, of course, parents buy a ton of toys and stuff for their kids. But I think this is just a small indication that Netflix is looking for other revenue streams as well. Yeah. Interesting to see what other things they'll bend on. Passwords, now this, uh, maybe more things in the future. Big week, of course, next week with the Fed meeting. Everyone have a good weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.